Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Drs. Elizabeth and Robert Bjork to the show. Dr. Elizabeth Bjork is Professor of Psychology and has served as Senior Vice Chair in the Psychology Department. She has also chaired UCLA's Academic Senate and received UCLA's Distinguished Teaching Award. Dr. Robert Bjork is a Distinguished Research Professor in the Department of Psychology. He is past president or chair of numerous societies, including APS, Western Psychological Association, and the Council of Editors of the APA. He has also received UCLA's Distinguished Teaching Award. Today, we will learn more about their academic journey, advice for those interested in the field of psychology, and discuss the Bjork Learning and Forgetting Lab. Elizabeth and Robert, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, thank you for taking the time to uh, uh, talk with me today. I'm so excited to learn more about your academic journey. You guys have had a long and distinguished uh, career within the field of cognitive psychology and You've, you've traveled a lot as well. Uh, it, it's always surprising to see how much you travel with each other and then with your uh, team uh, uh, on the on the uh, lab as well, uh, and then many sabbaticals. But well, to start us off, oh, not very much traveling recently, of course. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, that's fine. You can you can look back to all those times yeah. that you did travel, though. So it's it's uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, let's go ahead and just get started and kind of open it up and, and tell me a little bit more about yourself. Elizabeth, why don't you go first? OK. Um, well, I have always I guess I have always been interested in learning just and not really how it works, but uh, as a as a child, you know, going through the grade school and so forth, I, I never found school aversive or drudgery or anything. I found it this opportunity to learn about new things. And so I always found it sort of exciting. So I always thought, and I also like to, um, I enjoyed interacting with friends who say, I don't understand this problem. Can you help me? And I would work with them. So I kind of, early on thought I wanted to somehow stay involved in education and learning. Um, I didn't actually know anything about psychology. My undergraduate degree was uh, in mathematics. I only took psychology because I needed it to fulfill a general education requirement my senior year. And, uh, and there I found there was this, um, this field called mathematical psychology. And it sounded so intriguing. And I really, uh, I, I was drawn to the various problems that uh, they, people in this field were working on. I um, then actually sought out at the University of Florida, which is where I was at the time, uh, the faculty there in psychology and 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 I and I interacted with some of the graduate students were there. How did you get interested? Uh, and um, decided, well, maybe I'll try to do something in this field. And so that's what kind of 
got mm -hmm. me started in a very general way. As I said, I went to graduate school knowing very little about psychology other than there was this field called mathematical psychology. So well, that's a pretty different kind of story than mine. I, I, I just realized <laughs> to some extent now that uh, I was much more interested in sports and so on than I was in academics. And uh, a somewhat accidental thing helped me quite a bit, which is that a close friend with whom I played golf, basketball, whatever, uh, Thomas Hofstad, this is back in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, we were in the same classes, like the senior year, and we had bet and had we, we had contests and everything. And I don't know which one of us suggested that we do a, a penny a point on all the exams. <laughs> what difference? <laughs> and under that crude motivation, <clears throat> I think our senior year is we were right near the top of this class back in Minnesota. And that then led to um, being able actually to get admitted to different places. And another somewhat accidental thing was that I had caddied every summer as just a way to make money and found out uh, eventually after a year of college or so that there was an Evans Scholar program and that's for former caddies. Mm -hmm. And that I qualified and that that I've um, got to make the story a little short, but that that led me to uh, transfer from St. Olaf College, where I was to the University of, of Minnesota and meant I could live on campus in the Evans Scholars house. A little some similarities with Elizabeth is I didn't have any intention to major in psychology. I was in physics until I saw what people were doing in the laboratories <laughs> and that, that, that didn't interest me as much as sort of more theoretical physics. And it was a crisis point. Then I asked to a counselor and she said, well, look, you can just declare yourself a math major. And then what are you interested in? And I, like Elizabeth, had just taken a course in psychology very late. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that looks like a field where there's a lot to learn and it's early in its history as opposed to physics. And so I switched to psychology, mathematical psychology in particular mm -hmm. at that time and did one year of graduate work at Minnesota before um, my advisor then somewhat magically and mysteriously in the middle of that year said, you know, I just heard that this prominent figure, William Estes, who went on the National Medal of Science is moving to Stanford that was already the best program in math site, you should go there. And I, one reaction I had was he was like rejecting me. Another <laughs> was, well, he knows what, okay, I'll do that. So that led me to go to Stanford. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one similarity that I found when researching both of you is both of you received your BA in mathematics. Uh, Elizabeth, you at the University of Florida. And then as you mentioned, Robert, uh, University of Minnesota. And then you guys moved on and it's kind of interesting you, you brought up a second similarity where at the end you guys finally took a, a psychology right. class and then all of a sudden became interested in that so uh you kind of already answered my next question robert why did you uh select the u of m in the first place but i'll let you elaborate how did you find the u of m and and then what made you decide to attend there versus uh, a different school well, I was, I was nearby in the sense that I'd grown up in Minnesota. 
but uh, it was it was financial meeting, financial reasons more than anything else. Uh, plus, I kind of knew very little of the academic program. I kind of remember one of my high school friends getting all excited that he was get, got admitted to Dartmouth and was trying Harvard or something. And, and I, I didn't know, like I thought Minnesota is the best university there was and that's where you go. Uh, lived about a 30, 40 minute drive away. And I had a short period of commuting uh, early in the morning to classes and so on. And that led Elizabeth and I to think our own sons should never do that. <laughs> and so even though they were right here, a, 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 a nice walk to the UCLA campus, we really didn't want them to live at home. And so um, one of them, our, our younger son, went to Rice and our, our older son, after a year in a small college, wanted to transfer back. and but. But he uh, lived with a friend in a student apartment and so on. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I didn't have much. It was not in any kind of academic family. So I didn't uh, in advance know. And even the mathematics, when I thought I was going to mathematical psychology, that was kind of like, okay, I'll sort of fit learning curves and whatever. But then when I got to Stanford, I got really interested when, when some of these predictions and math things were wrong. Well, how does the system work? Right. And that, that really was a sort of ignition point for me. And that, that's driven my interest ever since. Well, I think you, in my research, you lived in Minnetonka, right? That's right. Near, yeah. right, near Lake Minnetonka, there's only one poor section there that's an affluent area. And we lived in that. <laughs> We lived in that one poor section. <clears throat> well, you, you also went, was it, uh, I can't remember what golf course when I was looking at everything, but you mentioned that you were a caddy. Was that the same golf course that I, yes, I saw on your Yes, and PowerPoint? as a matter of fact, uh, I'm indebted to them. When I found out about Evan Scholar, they didn't even belong to the group of golf courses, but they joined just so that I could get that fellowship. So aren't you, aren't you special, Robert? That's that, awesome. That was really, <laughs> that, that was so important and, and such a chance kind of thing. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure if you realize, but I'm actually in Minnesota. And so I, I know oh, really? the area pretty well. Yeah. U of M and, and my daughter attended U of M uh, in, wow. in uh, psychology as well. So my mother is a licensed psychologist. So that's, that's why I'm so interested in this okay. field as well. So yeah, well, um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Except for except for thinking back to a few things, even even winter was fine actually, but mosquitoes. There was like otherwise <laughs> on every other dimension during our time, Minnesota was innovative, supportive. I had a lot of confidence in the state government that that they would do sort of good things as far as protecting lakes and various other things. But, um, you know, adapting to mosquitoes was a little bit of a problem. But, but uh, we have been back visiting some relatives and so on, and it seems like things have happened. It's been, we're, we're struck every time we're back there. 
Yeah, it's all, they're always growing. It's, it's, it's amazing. The town that I grew up in, it was Woodbury, Minnesota. And okay. back in high school for me, they only had 10,000 people, 10296. I still remember the sign. Yeah. And um, now they're over 65,000 wow. people in that town. Yeah. So it's, it's wow. unreal. So I don't, I don't want to skip over you, Elizabeth. Why did you choose the University of Florida? Well, some of it was uh, had nothing really to do with academics. It was family sort of thing. But um, once I got it, but once I got there, uh, I did. I was interested in going in part because it had a strong engineering department, which meant it was going to have a strong math department. Mm -hmm. And um, but one of the great things about Florida, the the program in Florida. Uh, is that uh, they have this uh, goal of uh, that you know you can major in you can major in sciences you can major in mathematics, uh, physics whatever, but you also have to take a um, certain number of units in what they call sort of the liberal arts program, and. Uh, that was how I sort of first got interested and in, or found out about humanities and uh, uh, had to take, uh, in fact, this course that I took was called um, Humanities and Contemporary Life or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you learned about music, you learned about literature, it covered, it kind of made sort of, uh, art, painting, music, literature, drama. Uh, it went through, you know, all the things that you sort of think of as being in your, um, what's a classical liberal arts education. And then you could branch out as you felt after that. If you, if you really liked uh, art or art history, you could go on and study that, or you really liked uh, some other aspect. Uh, but that really opened my eyes to all these additional um, interesting aspects of the intellectual world. So um, I really, that was, I feel very uh, grateful to the University of Florida that I was exposed to that. It's kind. interesting that they probably don't have it there anymore. So <laughs> well, they, they, might. they might, but the, you know, one point this kind of humanities thing was, was, pretty common and a, an interesting thing is the very prominent programs like MIT and Caltech, you know, technology, they have instituted a humanities program for all freshmen runs across the whole year. So you really, a kind of hyper specialization in some technical area really is missing out on education more broadly. I think these programs are terrific where they exist yeah uh, but a lot of places they they don't exist anymore <clears throat> well I can I can tell you I'm looking at University of Florida right now offers a PhD in psychology PhD in counseling psychology clinical psychology <clears throat> an EDS and a PhD uh, as well and then they also have a PhD in developmental psychology yeah. and research and evaluation methodology so but you should be looking at the undergraduate major what yeah. they require there is oh, probably okay. the undergraduate program. undergraduate program probably doesn't include that 
Great. You're exactly great right. Building. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at it right now on my other screen here. I have multiple okay. screens, right. and, and I I don't see that at the undergrad level. So yeah. you're exactly right. Well, that, yeah. would be, that would be a shame if they've gotten rid of that program. It was really. And some schools have a great books program. You know that mm -hmm. the, the freshman year, that's the main focus for everybody. Whatever they're going to major in mm -hmm. is a, a great books program. Yeah. <clears throat> And Elizabeth, after uh, Florida, you went on to receive your master's and doctorate at the University of Michigan. For our audience, kind of tell us your thought process of how you ended up there and why you chose okay. Michigan. Well, as, as Bob sort of indicated, mathematical psychology was sort of a new field. And there weren't all that many universities that had a graduate program in it. And uh, Unlike Bob, who was told Stanford was the best place to go for a mathematics program, <laughs> <laughs> mathematics psych program. I was told University of Michigan was the best place to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one of the reasons that I went there. They also, um, uh, there was a lot of, uh, when I got accepted, when I applied there, I applied both to the math graduate program and the psych graduate program. I didn't think I'd get into the psych program because I knew so little about psychology. But I think people are very impressed with people that have a math degree. <laughs> they sort of assume that if you can do math, you can do anything. So um, I got accepted to both programs. I went back for a visit. And uh, the uh, people in math said, you know, here you can do both for a couple of years and then decide by that time you'll you'll know which area you want to you you want to focus on and uh, so that's what I did and I, that really impressed me that they had that sort of flexibility and that uh, 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 sort of broad way of thinking about psychology and math and um, to some degree like Bob I um, discovered that the way you do research in psychology was much more interesting to me because it's much more collaborative. You're part of labs. You usually have uh, colleagues that you uh, do research with. Lots can easy to involve a lot of students in your research. Whereas mathematics is much more of a sort of isolated and solo kind of endeavor which um, is perfect for some people, but I really like the uh, collaborative nature of how progress was made in psychology versus mathematics. So I eventually came over and, and finished up my PhD in psychology. Yep, and I see that you finished that. Um, I think, you know, Bob, your, your, journey is a little different. You already mentioned and gave a teaser, hey, you went to Stanford University right. and ask you why in a second. But it's interesting, some of for our audience members, some of them don't realize that some universities offer a terminal uh, master's, and then uh, a separate PhD versus others, you go through the entire um, uh, PhD program, and then you get the master's kind of in passing while you're while you're doing that. So tell us a little bit more about well, you already know 
you should go to Stanford. It's the best university yeah. out there. Um, you didn't have to follow that, but you, at that point in time, you're thinking, well, I got to be competitive with all my other people who are just bragging about going to these other schools. So maybe I should go to Stanford. Is yeah. that your thought process? Yeah. And, and when I arrived at Stanford, it was a very different world. I mean, it was, there was an Institute for Mathematical Studies and Social Sciences that had these several faculty, not just William Estes, we mentioned, but several other people, uh, Gordon Bauer, and three of those people went on to get the National Medal of Science. And the, the one who didn't, Richard Atkinson, <laughs> went on to chair the entire University of California, and at one point, the National Science Foundation. So this was all in one building that had been a nurse's dormitory, but now is this Institute for Mathematical Studies in the Social Sciences. And so it had those faculty, uh, just astounding when I look back at it. And then the, the graduate students became their own sort of culture. And initially I had a reaction, uh, how do I compete in this world? Because as we just kind of found this, this student was second in their class at Yale and this student had won this or that. And, and I thought, I'm, I'm a Minnesota boy here coming from, you know, like I didn't have the background that a lot of them did. But anyways, very uh, exciting place to be. And it was, we stayed around this, this, uh, this building that housed it. I mentioned it had been a nurse's dorm. So it had like a living room and a kitchen and late at night, we'd be in there arguing with each other. And it was just when, when you could computing centers were, starting to become very important. And we found that if we stayed there late, we could get a rapid turnaround by walking over to the computer center. But I, I better not get stuck in that story too much. <laughs> but so uh, that was, a, in contrast to now, it was a time when there was, when we finished, there were a lot of jobs. And um, somehow the faculty there at that center sort of, or, I don't know what they were telling us, a different, you know, it's kind of what's now referred to as the old boys network. It was not a egalitarian way of applying for jobs. It was kind of senior people, mostly men. You know, do you have a really good student kind of thing? But uh, so um, I had several offers, but when I talked to my mentor, uh, Billy Masses, he said, you know, when you have offer from Michigan, you just can't consider these other places. I was very excited about it. But when I arrived at Michigan, um, one of the things I taught was a brief kind of survey course. And when I met Elizabeth was when she came in to drop my course <laughs> oh. <laughs> at, the at the suggestion of her then boyfriend. So as I mentioned, she was an advanced graduate student at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a beginning professor. So, but in any case, uh, that is initially how we met there. And then she went off to Rockefeller University as, as a first um, job. And uh, working with one of the great math psychologists, uh, Bill Estes, I was in yeah. his lab. Yeah. And, then, and then to cut the story a little short, when we decided to get married, um, we, we, you know, we had a funny period of, uh, meeting in exotic places between <laughs> Ann Arbor and, and New York city, like Cleveland and so on. Uh, it was far enough ago that you weren't having internet 
things like this, for example. <laughs> but uh, they didn't want to, when we decided to get married, they didn't want to lose Elizabeth quite that fast. So William Estes arranged that I would come there. I think it was just half a year, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. And then and together. And then Michigan um, <clears throat> really, we were indebted to them ever since. Um, when we came back, they appointed, give Elizabeth a professorial appointment, given all she'd done. And that was extraordinarily rare mm -hmm. um, across the whole country. The, there were almost, I mean, you could count only two or three cases probably of um, a husband and wife having the same appointment, you know, both being a professorial appointment. Because mm -hmm. it was considered nepotism, and um, it took quite a while for that to change. And so, usually, what happened in about ninety percent of the cases is the woman would find something else to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was true of a lot of really women who, quite prominent, find some other position where the, the husband had the professorial position. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because I did some research on when I went through my master's and, and started my doctorate, uh, I did have married couples that were within the same department. And before I uh, um, uh, got ready for this interview with you, I thought, well, is that common now versus back then? And you're exactly right, Robert. Uh, back then, it was extremely rare to have that happen. And now it's more of a common um, you, you see it more, well, more common. I've seen anywhere from 25 to 40% of the time yes. that they do accept both, both people. In well, you can, it, it can become a strategy for department. They can hire two people that they wouldn't be able to, um, without that, because that. they, in expensive areas and so on, um, they can, but so yeah, it's changed a great deal. And uh, part of it, it was one place where the government played a really big role because when they looked at the statistics and so it was always basically unfair to the women, mm -hmm. um, rules were instantiated that as if you were going to get funding from certain of the government agencies. <clears throat> you had to fix it. You had to fix that. <laughs> right. And so... That made a big difference, but I think it's... It, it, then there were suddenly many, many women who had been working at various universities for, you know, 20, 30 years uh, in like lectureships and other things, but they had been accumulating uh, a research record, a teaching record, et cetera, and they had to all be sort of um, evaluated or reviewed to see where they should go. <laughs> And uh, many women went from, you know, this lecture position to a full professor just because of this. Uh, uh, and you know, yeah, as Bob said, it was mostly the government saying, mm -hmm. if you want us to keep receiving federal funds, you have to get rid of this nepotism rule. Because mm -hmm. people really were using it as sort of a cheap way to get really... <laughs> Uh, good service from the wife of uh, mm -hmm. uh, a, a professor they were hiring. So one we, of my think we, we think we're the second couple um, to be hired in the same department uh, okay. in, in California in psychology. 
you know, now it's, uh, now typically two thirds of psychology majors are, are, are women now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Is it really that high? It's a little higher than that actually. Oh. And so we see this when we're admitting graduate students that we actually get, our department gets somewhat worried uh, about our psychology graduate student population now being in some areas of the department just close to 100% women. We don't, we don't think that's perfect either, but mm-hmm. so it's changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things that you've shared a lot and a couple of things that I kind of wanted to remind everybody leading up to my next question, which is what advice would both of you offer to those seeking a master's or doctorate in psychology? One thing you mentioned earlier was go ahead and live on campus or near campus instead of staying at home. Immerse yourself in that culture is is one thing that I I picked up on earlier. What other uh, advice do you have for those uh, who are interested in getting that uh, graduate degree in psychology? I should say that um, as, you know, as an undergraduate, if possible, you should uh, seek out faculty who are doing research in psychology. And often, like we have, you know, anywhere from half a dozen to 10 or 15 undergraduates working in our lab doing various things for us. And, um, you know, they maybe they're getting an honors project or they're doing a senior thesis or something uh, as well as working in the lab but they get really exposed to what it would be like to do this in graduate school and what it would be like to do this as a future career. And uh, some, a few, not many, but a few say, "Mm, this is not what I thought it would be. And, you know, then they look elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but many, uh, that's the sort of turning point from them. This is, uh, I love doing Mm -hmm. this. Uh, This is what I want to keep doing. Um, so that's at the undergraduate level. That's to help you make this decision. I want to go on for some kind of an advanced degree uh, in psychology. And then I think you should do the sort of things that, um, and to make yourself eligible to be accepted to programs, it's really good as an undergraduate to get involved in somebody's lab. It hardly even matters what they are right. doing, just mm-hmm. to get that research experience. Uh, and that is really looks very good on your, you know, your application. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes people think, well, this is somebody who knows what they're getting into. So, you know, it's very expensive to train somebody yeah. for through mm-hmm. the master's or the PhD program. And you don't want to use up that spot for somebody who really doesn't, is going to just leave after a year or drop out of the program. And then plus then somebody can write an informed recommendation letter, Mm -hmm. you know, that we get students who just don't take advantage of everything that's like UCLA. All we could say is, well, we taught this course to 300 students and they made an A or something. So if if you're involved in research and the way it works in practice at, at, at the sort of prominent research universities, as an undergraduate, probably end up working more closely with a graduate student or a postdoctoral fellow than you will, unless it's an honor, see something, 
but that there's not a drawback. These these graduate students and postdocs they work with, you know, can be models. They they, they have time to do it. it it's it's a terrific uh, experience to have on your record. Now, one thing as far as thinking of the masters as a terminal degree, there I think it matters a lot what you want to go on to do. Um, I think in basic psychology of, of the kind uh, we're involved in that, probably the only real alternatives for a master's student might be in some high tech companies or something like that, where they took a lot of, a lot of mathematics, but in other, some other areas of um, industrial, there are, there, there are other domains where a master's degree might lead to more job opportunities, but, but that you, you said what an undergrad ought to know. And I think that's crucial to realize if you're considering the masters, um, what opportunities will that open up for you and what fields and are those sort of fields yeah. you want to work in? <clears throat> and one clue there, I would say, is if it's a school, if the department you're looking at offers what you were referring to as a terminal master's program, then that probably means it's a field where uh, it's valuable to have that master's and it opens up doors for you in terms of the kind of uh, positions that you can then get. But if it, as Michigan does, is they don't accept terminal master's students, so you have to be applying for the PhD program. But uh, as was mentioned in the introduction, uh, often you sort of get, that gets sort of, a, it just becomes a mat. You just automatically fulfill the requirements for a master's degree on your way to the PhD. So you mm -hmm. just sort of apply for that at some point. Uh, but um, so that's one way of, of sort of helping you decide is that will, would a master's degree really be worth it? Uh, so, you know, in law schools, for example, they tend to be, they tend to have terminal master's programs that are valuable, economics, uh, I think engineering yeah. and so forth. But in psychology, there's not a lot, there's not a lot that buys you in terms of your future career. So that's just something to think about. Well, very good advice. Thank you for sharing that. The other thing that I'd add is, you know, based on my other conversations with other professors and practitioners in the field, you mentioned seek out those uh, professors that are uh, doing research in psychology. And I'd even go further and saying, hey, seek out those that are doing research in the area that you're really interested in, because that kind of leads to my next question mm -hmm. about some, some <clears throat> undergrad think, well, how can I make all these decisions? Which area or branch of psychology can I go into and look at? And, um, you know, the one thing that um, a lot of people look at is uh, all of the different branches of psychology, as I mentioned. And if you can see my yeah. screen, um, you know, there are many things out there where you could look at, but my question for you is you see all these different branches and these, this is not exhaustive by any means, right. but you guys focused on uh, cognitive psychology. So how did you guys decide on, on doing that? Did you decide ahead of time or all of a sudden you just did something that was really interesting and then all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, this is, this falls into the area of cognitive psychology. So tell, tell us how you guys found yourself in that 
particular area. I'll, I'll do this one first. I guess, I mean, I just, um, you know, a lot has to do with what the faculty are, that you might be working on, are working on. But uh, I had developed through somewhat other means quite a strong interest in how is it that people learn and what can they do to improve performance. Again, some of that early on was just related to sports and what could you do to get better there. And, um, but just eventually the very, the fundamental issues of, of how we learn. And then some years later, a strong concern to both of us had versus how do we think we learn? So that, that's been a big theme of our lab in recent years, which is um, people's understanding of themselves of what activities create durable learning and which do not. It's, it's really been fascinating to us that people's own kind of mental model of themselves as learners, it can be so far off. And that, that just got us think, well, how much better could schooling be, could, could, could training in different fields be, if it really meshed with the way people learn? I mean, really, we can take what a typical student does as far as preparing for exams and so on. And, and that is for, for the payback for the time spent of rereading notes and underlining and and um, all, all kinds of things that we know now are, are nowhere near as productive, blocking their practice by topic and, and basically not exercising the retrieval practice, the encoding variability, the other things that are powerful. Um, so yeah. that, that got us eventually, and that, that was sort of happened to each one of us somewhat independently to sort of at some point say, wait a minute, this stuff we're doing in a very basic theoretical way right. is really important in, in real world context of schooling and how people study and so on. Some fields lend themselves to doing more of the good things, uh, like where, uh, where it's very important to learn how to solve problems and things like in math. Mm -hmm. uh, so that a lot of a lot of what's going on there is students learning how to solve different problems. They have to do it themselves. They work at it. Then they maybe have to get some hints and then they go on and try again. So they're incorporating some of the things that we found really do lead to true learning. But uh, the problem with so many other fields is the, our intuitions just lead us astray mm -hmm. of what is a good thing to do. Like, one of the favorite things students have is I like to read the chapter over and over again. And a lot of this is because when you read it a second time, you start recognizing a lot of the things. Oh, yes. And you interpret that recognition, which is pretty happening at a pretty low level, uh, more of a perceptual level, really, then uh, you interpret that as an understanding that you have comprehended this that you've got it that you've learned it but that's not going to be at all supportive of doing well on a later exam um, so I think that's one of the problems that keep people from discovering the better things to do is that our intuitions 
uh, are not a particularly good guide for uh, whether we're doing something that's that is really uh, making us learn versus just sort of and that's what led, a false sense of comprehension at the moment. Yeah, that's what eventually led us to come up with the phrase desirable difficulties, which is that things that create a sense of greater difficulty. So for example, rereading something a second time is a much easier activity to do than trying to summarize everything you can remember or recall from the first time you read it. And so in that case, uh, your, your resistance are to kind of, uh, you know, who wants to make things difficult on yourself? <laughs> but so that's what we've had to emphasize in all sorts of different ways, that these activities that create a sense of difficulty, uh, retrieval practice, varying where you study rather than when keeping it fixed, varying how you study, all, all this array of things, they create a greater sense of difficulty, but then lead to better long-term memory and transfer. So it's uh, to become maximally effective is a kind of challenge because you have to um, have kind of a long-term goal and, and uh, sort of accept um, challenges right now for benefits later. One thing that I found interesting in uh, preparing for this interview for you is the idea of forgetting is actually beneficial uh, right. versus everybody tends to think, oh, I forgot that. I, I'm not very good at studying. Mm -hmm. and, and in actuality, when you look at some of the research, forgetting actually helps you guys uh, or helps the person um, recall better later on and then uh, put it into long-term memory as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of that, but the prime one is the so-called spacing effect. That is, if you're going to study something twice, there's huge benefits, often two to one, of spacing those sessions apart rather than doing it right again. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, you're, you'll not only have a sense of that you're doing better with mass practice, but, uh, you know, so it's, it's a prime example because when you space, you let forgetting happen mm -hmm. before you restudy it. And that makes the restudying, we don't want to get into the <laughs> theories too much, but that makes the restudying far more effective than um, when it's all still there from the first time you study. So since I'm already sharing the screen on, on you know, this is one of your pages, uh, the research on your lab, uh, of course, UCLA Bjork Learning and Forgetting Lab. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, one of my questions was how soon after both of you arrived at UCLA did you start the lab? I think if my math is correct, about four to five years after you arrived at uh, um, UCLA, you started the lab. And what's interesting if, for those who are listening and, and watching this uh, interview, you can actually go and, and look at the, the history and then they even you know, they talk about the principal investigators, the research. What I really liked here was you have a useful links and media page uh, that, that gives you the history of Bob. And for those of you who want to know a little bit more, this is a little misleading because it's actually a lot about uh, Bob and Elizabeth 
their mentors, mentees, their uh, sabbaticals. Uh, I'd, I'd really encourage you to take a look at the slideshow. And then you recently, well, about eight years ago, had a 35th anniversary poster that you guys uh, uh, shared. Uh, and then here's that 35th anniversary poster. And then you gave a timeline. I like this because it shows yeah. you the timeline of all the people that were involved in the lab all the way from its inception in 79, all the way through the current uh, when you scroll down. So I, I really enjoyed all of the information on each of the lab pages. But tell me, how has the lab evolved or, or changed throughout the years? Think back when you first started and then you, you did have different eras here, early area era and then generation generation all the way leading up to interleaving um tell me how it's evolved in the structure and how you envision it moving forward i want to say one background thing before then you can okay. respond more directly to this you know just to relate a little bit to what we talked about before when we both got positions um in the department of psychology ucla uh there was still a code that you should, if you were a couple, you should work on different things. <laughs> and so Elizabeth was the one, often women, she was the one that kind of, so she had a phase of doing work on, on perception, on infant memory and so on, so that we would look more independent. And it wasn't till I think 20 years after we were married that we, we felt free to both be on the same article. So the, the, a kind of nepotism persisted informally even after you yeah. could have a... So uh, there was a period where Elizabeth was struggling to have a separate identity. Um, but then at some point, it really was kind of influenced by some of our earliest graduate students who, <clears throat> who now have gone on to be major figures themselves uh, to create this central lab and, and a a uh, meeting that's quite famous now <laughs> called, a, I won't say why, it's called the Cogfog meeting Friday mornings. Uh, and that came to tie a lot of things together. And so um, I think you could go on Elizabeth and talk a little bit about the nature of the lab and so on. Yeah, and I, and I should say today, there are many, uh, uh, male and female partners, couples who uh, collaborate together in research and publish together in research. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, when I first came back to Michigan uh, from Rockefeller University, um, I felt obligated to um, sort of not continue the research that I had been doing on learning and memory and focus more on this other research that I had done and was interested in, in the field at that time called uh, visual information processing. It probably is now better known as visual cognition, but um, so that's the way I went for a while. And then I also, as Bob said, I got interested in uh, developmental aspects of uh, learning and memory and worked with a number of our developmental graduate students on that. But cognition and particularly learning and memory, <laughs> you can do that in any field. 
I mean, there's no field that escapes an influence of learning and memory. And there's no field where cognition, which mm-hmm. involves, you know, uh, perceiving and thinking and reasoning and learning and memory, that those processes aren't involved. So it wasn't that hard for me to keep a keep a toe in the, the learning and memory world, which is where I what I'd done my PhD in and also did research. Uh, there at Rockefeller, both in visual information processing and learning and memory. Uh, but it was nice when we felt comfortable to go ahead and start publishing together. And uh, because we talked about research, particularly I would say, we yeah. talked about uh, the, res- the research that Bob was doing in learning and memory. We would talk about that. And so, I was involved yeah. in it, but you know, it wasn't showing up in terms of a record. She anywhere. was in footnotes for a while before. <laughs> <laughs> before. Uh, but then, you know, things did change, and the Association for Psychological Science, uh, in their publication, decided to have a series on what they called dynamic duels. And I don't know if we shared that article with you, but we were we were the first of the of the couples asked to write about our experience and uh and that that was an interesting exercise for us to think back it's on that hard to so, do. <laughs> yeah it was hard to do and uh well what's interesting is you brought that up because i did have a question later on about um how how did, how did you guys work together at the very beginning because you guys both had that math background and then psychology and then it, it, you kind of teased an answer to one of my questions. Well, how did you guys meet? Well, you, you feel unfortunate for that boyfriend who told you, Elizabeth, you gotta, you gotta drop his class as soon as you did. Then from there, then, you know, everything else happened. And, and that was just before I believe you went to Rockefeller. And then a year later, Robert went to Rockefeller. So I, based on just the timeline, assumed that you guys met at Rockefeller, but it was actually just before you, you both went to uh, Rockefeller. So uh, I do have a follow-up question, kind of an interesting one off topic. Um, I saw in the PowerPoint presentation about what about Bob, um, Reverend Cyril Jenkins married Kermit and Miss Piggy. And did he actually uh, marry you two as well? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and we we just by chance had gone to see that. Uh, you know, took that movie, took our two kids there, and it's the finale scene in the movie where Kermit's unsure it's supposed to be part of the play, but now there's now there's a real minister minister right, right, and so it ends up with this. Well, has Miss Piggy arranged for a real marriage? But anyway. We were stunned and we sat there in the theater afterwards looking to at look each at other. Look at the credits. Look at the credits. Sure. Was that really Cyril Jenkins? <laughs> and then when we mentioned to our two very young sons at that time, <laughs> the one who married us, then they became concerned were we actually married? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. So I should mention that you guys have, uh, is it two or three uh, children? Well, we have three. Elizabeth has a. Uh, the first son that we adore, and then we've got two of our own. So I think David was from um, Elizabeth before, and then yes. Olin and Eric were right. from yeah. both yeah. of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So that's interesting. And then just as a, as an a side note, uh, I looked at their history as well. Both of them did very well, went on for their graduate degrees as well. I think one was in computer science and I can't recall the other one was in what area? Well, it's a, it's a, it's an intersection of computers and uh, English literature. Okay. And, uh, that's a, a kind of modern humanities in some respects, yeah. but yeah. A lot of people call it digital humanities now, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what he teaches at the University of Houston. <clears throat> yep. And so just to bring our audience up to speed, we started with a kind of a chronologically, you know, discussing uh, where you guys were. And then after both of you finished your, your doctorates, you uh, went to Rockefeller and each for two years, and then you had one year where you kind of uh, overlapped there. How did you guys find yourself at UCLA then? Tell us, you know, what led you, both of you to UCLA? Well, um, when I finished at Stanford, it was one of these rare times when there were a lot of jobs. Uh, current grad students could probably find it hard to believe there were that many <laughs> openings. And uh, so the places that I received, you know, sort of invitations were Indiana. They were the University of California, Irvine, which had just was just starting then and was very appealing to me to get to stay in California and to go there. Um, and then uh, Princeton, but um, you know, in terms of our, the, the mentors, and particularly William Estes, um, just Michigan was, at that time, <clears throat> Stanford was ranked one among all graduate programs in psychology. Michigan was two. <clears throat> and so basically, so well, you're not going to do better than going to Michigan, which is a wonderful place. So you're going to waste if you interview at these other places, you're wasting their time. You know, I mean, that is almost impossible for any current grad student to believe that could ever happen. But, <clears throat> but I took his advice and Michigan's a wonderful place to be. So mm -hmm. um, we, did, we did keep in mind always uh, uh, all the, the time we were at Michigan that, uh, that might like to get back to California. And at one point, we- Well, Bob. I, yeah, I had I, never been to well, California. Well, you, you liked the idea of- I liked the idea of warm weather. Warm yes. weather. And we, <laughs> we, did, we did interview at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara at one point. But, but there were various reasons why that was just professionally not as good as staying at- uh, Michigan. Michigan. And, and, you know, when you're at Stanford and probably Berkeley too, uh, one of the things they do is to convince you that Los Angeles is the worst place in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I don't know that we would have interviewed there, except we were on a, a six month um, leave at UC San Diego to, to work with some people there. And that just being in at in La Jolla and so on, that had already changed our image of what Southern California was like. And then when we got- Well, actually, even while we were there, um, 
UCLA approached us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we said at the time, well, we're not sure we want to live in Los Angeles. And, and, and my, my image of what the University of California would be like is, was a, a university in the middle of freeways going over it and so forth. <laughs> so yeah. they said, well, you're so close. Just come up and have lunch here and, you know, take a look around. And we did, and we were kind of blown away. UCLA has an absolutely gorgeous campus, and um, it's very non-freeway-y. Um, and so it's actually surrounded by beautiful um, uh, neighborhoods, probably too beautiful, yeah. too expensive. Bel Air and... Right. But it's, it's a... Uh, so that immediately changed our perception of what maybe living in Los Angeles and would mm. be. And we had the two little kids. So well, I guess we only had one little kid at that time. Uh, and um, so that all factored in too. And then they became serious about offers and we went out to visit. And that's how it. Yeah. Well, I think the, the one thing to keep in mind is you, you've had a successful career, both of you on your own right, uh, as well as together. And uh, Robert, to your point earlier, I, I did look at your Vita and, and I saw no dual, you know, both of you weren't, weren't on the early ones. And then eventually it started to creep yeah, up where you guys, uh, you know, had sites uh, uh, together. Uh, you've been at UCLA since 1974. You started the uh, lab in 1979. Both of you focus on human learning and memory. And based on what I was looking at for your, each of your Vitas, um, one was, uh, I, I think, Elizabeth, you were more focused on the memory aspect and, and Robert, um, and it might have changed since then, but uh, it seemed like you were more focused on the implications of the science of learning. Uh, on, on instruction and training, but now I see both. And so I'm going to, while you kind of tell me what are your current areas of study and, and what do you see yourself studying in the future while you uh, answer that, I'm going to share the screen again and kind of uh, bring up another thing on the screen here. So what are you focused on now and, and where do you see yourself, uh, each of you, uh, uh, focusing on in the future in, in terms of your areas of study? Well, I think one thing that's more of a focus now than it might have been earlier is is to try to do what we can to help the the grad students and postdocs and honors undergrad the undergrads working with us to to, to help them sort of achieve their goals. Um, in our own case, it's not that we want we have a goal like moving to any other place or <clears throat> or getting you know five more research articles and stuff it's <laughs> it's we're we're you know we're more nearing the end of our careers and kind of focused we take great joy in what our students have done over the years and and their prominence in the field and i i'd say that's more of a focus than it's ever been because whatever our images may be in the field and whatever our accomplishments, we're just gratified by those. And, and we don't really think that we need um, more recognition ourselves as much as just that um, 
as we uh, get closer to the end that we can uh, keep doing, uh, creating an environment in which the, the students still working with us and so on can succeed. We would like to see, and I think this is something you brought up at some point, we would like to see more of our um, sort of theoretical work and our uh, this concept of desirable difficulties. We would like to see more of the more of the findings from the science of learning get uh, find their way into public education uh, at the you know the K through 12 level. Uh, and uh, and that seems to be happening more so for strange strangely in England than it does seem to be happening in the United States. Uh, but there are more and more teachers who are uh, sort of discovering um, desirable difficulties, the importance of retrieval practice, uh, the importance of spacing, etc., for actually helping students. Uh, <clears throat> maintain and keep remembering the learning that they accomplish in one year on to the next and the next and the next, rather than it's like at the end of the year, they take a test on what they, you know, had learned that year, but by the next year, they, they do very poorly on that text, mm -hmm. so, that same test. So um, we'd like to see that. I've stayed more involved probably in our undergraduate program than than Bob has, one of the things I find very exciting is I chair this committee called Undergraduate Student Initiated Education, or UC. And this is a program in which seniors, juniors and seniors can offer a seminar to freshmen and sophomore students. Uh, where they talk about some area that they have fallen in love with and think is so exciting. And um, they propose they propose this uh, idea of a course and then it's it's you know vetted and they go through a pedagogy seminar and then they offer it. And it's been this huge success, not only for the students who take it, but also for the students who do it. And uh, a lot of those people have decided I've got to involved teaching somehow in my future career. This has been, had been so rewarding. Uh, so I think, again, as an undergraduate, if there are programs like that at your university, try to get involved in them. Or Bob meant the comment about if you go on for a master's somewhere, you, don't, you wanna make sure you can live on campus, but that's not always possible. I know sometimes you have family responsibilities and so forth that, you, that makes that impossible. But try to get involved in some activity, some club, something uh, that does take place on campus so that you will meet uh, and interact with other individuals than just the ones that are in your particular classes. And I think, um, that way you can introduce some of the aspects of being on campus into your uh, experience. Very good suggestion. Uh, one thing that I did notice um, when looking at your um, well-known careers, I, I have to say to the audience, if you haven't done any research on uh, the Bjork's uh, long distinguished careers in cognitive research scientists, well-known in their field, 
Um, you recently received an award. Uh, you know, one thing I should, I should preface this. One thing that resonated with me when I was doing research on both of you is the consistent teaching and mentoring uh, awards and recognitions throughout the year. So I congratulate you on, on all of that recognition. Uh, it's obvious that your fellow uh, teachers and students, uh, advisees really look up to you, respect you. You have this warm, welcoming environment. I, I remember reading about the lab that uh, a lot of people loved uh, your openness to, to having that open discussion. Uh, most recently, both of you received the 2020 uh, APS Mentor Award. And I'll, I'll share the screen again for our uh, audience so you can see this. And here's the APS Mentor uh, Award that you guys received uh, about a year uh, ago. And in here, you can they even refer to, um, you know, your modesty and focus on the collective good. Uh, you love your science and the students. And one thing that I really liked here is of the more than 80 and growing number of honors, graduate and postdoctoral students and scholars, that you have mentored or co-mentored at UCLA, a staggering 57 or 70% have had successful academic, academic careers uh, related to uh, learning and memory. So congratulations to the both of you on this established and, and well-deserved career. Robert, you mentioned earlier that your goal isn't necessarily to publish more um, and, and you don't need to, I looked at your Vita, it's pages and pages and pages, both of you. And not only that, but you guys have been recognized multiple times for your contributions. Um, in 2016, both of you received the James McKean Cattell fellow award, which basically is a lifetime achievement award for your research contributions, uh, addressing critical problems in society. So again, first of all, congratulations on, on a wonderful career. Um, one thing that you guys mentioned, and Elizabeth, you mentioned near the end of your last um, um, talk was, you wanted to see more of the application uh, in, in our world. Is that part of the reason why you both um, got involved as academic partners in, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, COGX, am I saying that correctly? In, in COGX, yes, and then there's a company we've been involved, it's called um, Amplifier, which works on um, trying to upgrade the learning in various applied environments, um, especially <clears throat> in, uh, in hospitals, um, to make um, nurses more effective in, for example, recognizing symptoms of sepsis and so on. If they're not recognized within about 48 hours, there's nothing you can do for that patient. And they're, they're a company devoted to drawing on the science of learning to upgrade um, in a, a number of fields, yeah, uh, like a lot of, a lot in hospitals now, but other fields too. So, so that's that's been gratifying that I chair that board. Elizabeth's on it, and um, so it's um, there are things happening that are 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 exciting. Sometimes we think it's things are slow to change, and. Uh, people will get captured by something like the styles of learning and uh, with their, no support for that. 
that they just think if everybody else, some teacher will just teach things in some way that fits their style of learning, everything will kind of magically happen. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I shouldn't have even brought that up. It's a touchy topic for some people. Oh, one, well, uh, <clears throat> speaking of, of getting out <laughs> our uh, ideas about how to be more efficient learners, uh, effective learners and efficient learners, uh, one of our graduate students, Saskia Glee, is um, our guy, well, I guess I mispronounced her say. Uh, she, uh, as part of a group known as Lasting Learning, she goes into the valley, what, twice San, a week? San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley, and teaches in yeah, that's a her. Uh, minority uh, a school and tries to teach both the both the uh, teachers, the instructors, and the students how to apply desirable difficulties in their learning. These are struggling schools, and uh, some in the San Fernando Valley, and it's kind of amazing what she's managed to do there. Yeah, and uh, got a got a university got got a major award for that effort from UCLA. The Division of Life Sciences. Division of Life Sciences, in terms of um, an award for uh, engaging outside the university and in uh, so yeah so we we've been I mean a huge plus is uh, UCLA draws terrific students as, as you might or might not know there's more applicants for <clears throat> for um, at the undergraduate level more applicants. To UCLA than to any other university, even though there's some universities have many more uh, uh, larger freshman enrollment. Uh, so um, it, it's been kind of a privilege and something similar happens at the graduate level that we've, um, yeah. we've had terrific um, students working with us. So one thing that I did want to ask, and you've, you've touched on a few things, but based on all of the amount of research that you have read, conducted, um, what are some of the study skills that you can share with our audience, especially those in graduate school or undergrad, uh, to help improve their learning or maximize performance? Uh, I know you have a number of YouTube videos out there, and, and one of them I'm, I'm sharing on the screen right now which focuses just on that topic, but kind of between the two of you kind of come together and, and give us uh, the cream of the crop, uh, best advice that you have for us, uh, anybody out there who wants to improve their learning or maximize performance. That video, which is pretty short, would be one good thing to look at. <clears throat> I, never, I, I, I never thought it was great because it seemed like Elizabeth was so much better than I was. <laughs> but... With funny thing, it's just a funny little story. We, we, we didn't realize that we would both, you know, we had this thing, but we didn't realize that when one person was talking, the other would still be on the screen. And so, and particularly in my case, I was doing somewhat awkward things when Elizabeth was speaking. <laughs> but in any case, um, it's really, as far as the most important things, there just are certain principles that you just have to know, for example, the, the power of retrieval practice, just if you want to maximize learning, that's just incredible that when, when you 
retrieve something, you not only make it more recalled in the future, you make things in competition with it less recallable. <clears throat> and that's a really important thing. Plus, you will get a far better idea of what you know and don't know uh, from retrieval practice. And then you alluded earlier to spacing. That basic effect has been around for you know, over 100 years in different ways. And just a, a student just, it's real important. Don't just decide you're going to read this chapter a second time and try to see what you missed right away. You've got to go on to other things and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's crucial. And then the variability kind of results that, that um, um, a simple one is environmental variability, but there's other things where, you know, we're still trying to figure out the limits and nature of it. But if you, students get advised to find a great place on campus and to do all their study in that place. And in fact, that may get them to sit, sit down, down and get to work. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But in terms of their later recalled information, you recall more if you've studied something in two different locations than the same location. Mm -hmm. And so That's environmental variability is very important. And I don't know what you want to add to that, Elizabeth. These things are, they're, they're only a few principles, but they, they can lead a student to change dramatically how they go about things. <laughs> Anything that you can do that... Uh, uh, makes you have to generate what it is you're trying to learn, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's from memory or trying to solve a problem or whatever that, whatever it is, that is much better than just studying it. So, uh, and, and I think I actually learned this when I was a math student, although I didn't think of it in terms of uh, these principles at that time. But uh, it's very easy if you're looking at a theorem to go through it and say, oh, okay, I see why that was the next step. Oh, now I see why that's the next step. I see why that's the next step. Oh, yes. And, and you know, you feel like you know it. But if you're then asked to prove a similar kind of theorem later on some kind of exam, you have no idea even how to get started on it sometimes. So uh, we get... As I said, you can't trust these intuitions, these feelings that you have learned something when all you have done is just reread it and restudied it and restudied it. You have to see, test yourself. Can I retrieve this from my own memory when I don't have all these supports in front of me, when I haven't just heard how to solve this problem? Can I do it on my own? And you'll only be able to find that out if you engage in retrieval practice at some other time and then the one other little cue that we're sort of working on now or one of the new things is this advantage of actually taking some kind of a test answering questions about some sort of material before you even read that material mm -hmm. so like if you like you, you're assigned a chapter in a book if you go to the back of the end of the chapter there's usually questions. Read those questions and see if you have any idea how to uh, even approach the answers. And that then somehow makes when you go back and actually read the uh, text or the chapter, 
for yourself, it makes you a more effective encoder of that information that you have sort of thought about it a little bit beforehand and become, we don't mm -hmm. know exactly what the mechanism is. Maybe you're just, your curiosity has been increased. So you process the material in a more attentive, deeper way when you read it that after you've tried to answer some questions about it first. But that's just a hint to might make your studying more interesting to you. This is perhaps the newest theme because we've known for a very long time that retrieval practice, you know, after you study practice is very powerful. Effect. Mm -hmm. But this, this new work that even before you go into something, trying to answer questions, even when you're wrong just about all the time, it does something to make you... Uh, it, it activates relevant knowledge structures, even if you aren't coming up with quite the right answer, we think. And that makes you study the upcoming material more effectively. This is a topic going on right now in laboratories, several laboratories in the country. So sometimes it, you've heard it's yeah. pre-testing, sometimes yeah. it's forward testing. Yeah. And yeah. one other thing I should mention is uh, practical advice is the evidence for benefits of collaborative learning is really huge. So, you know, definitely recommend that, that students create little partnerships or little groups where you just do some of these things like, you know, if you and I are studying together, I've got the textbook in front of me and I ask you some question. Mm -hmm. You do your best to answer it. And then I, I try to refine your answer into a more complete answer. And then you take the textbook and you ask me. Mm -hmm. And that, that when you start to think about if that collaborative process is done correctly, it will exercise all these other things, retrieval practice, spacing, variability. Yeah. Uh, one mm -hmm. of our grad students, Megan Amando, has done quite a bit of work on that and the benefits of that. So, um, you know, it, plus that, can make your college life kind of more interactive, more enjoyable too. Yeah, sure. So the other thing that I, I had a couple thoughts here, and you guys have probably uh, looked at this before, but um, when you were talking about the pre-testing or forward testing, I remember back in grad school when I was testing myself and getting ready for a test or an exam, um, I would I would read some of the questions at the end of the uh, um, chapter even before I, I read it and it almost acted like a cue so yeah, or a flag. <laughs> and so when I'm reading through the chapter, oh my gosh, that, that, that clicked right there. And, and here is the answer. Yeah. Ahead so, of the research. Well, it, it benefited me a little bit, but the other things that I remember was I would sleep on it. So I'd, I'd, I'd uh, do some memory and, and everybody has to realize that there's difference between long-term and short-term memory and how you recall that as well. Right. But the, the uh, one thing that benefited me and everybody's different, but for me, it really helped when I uh, would test myself and, and memorize stuff one day, sleep on it, do some other things. And it's, it goes along the same lines as what you were spacing is what you're talking about yeah. before. And then doing that again, the other thing that I would tell, I was a teacher for a number of years as well, is I'd tell my students, try to, first of all, envision yourself in that testing environment. And so you're going to put that in your mind. Therefore, you're not going to be as anxious in that new environment. Kind of visualize yes. yourself in that yeah. environment, first mm -hmm. of all. And then secondly, you know, I helped a lot of students with SD or systematic desensitization. And you could apply that, I believe, 
to almost um, memory and recall as well, and, and trying to get yourself to feel more confident, comfortable in recalling that information. So I find all of your uh, uh, research very interesting. I do have one question, though. Does spelling matter? I looked at some of your research. I looked at I looked at some of your research, and I found a couple yeah. of uh, articles, and I'm going to share that on the screen now. So, in in a high level view, tell me what uh, does spelling matter? Yeah. So uh, we need to credit here a postdoc who worked with us, Stephen Pan, who who uh, eventually put this together. And but um, there's been, you know, we at one point. Spelling was part of a curriculum in the public schools. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, thought that that was something that had a kind of halo effect that, that you could spell things correctly. Now, with the, the, what motivated this article with the advent of the internet, people are, are writing in a way that is violating all, not just spelling, but other rules as well. <laughs> and there seems to be a prevailing idea, well, this doesn't matter. And sometimes we even get, it's amazing to me, but we will even get inquiries about our, whether from undergrads or sometimes you know, high school students, um, inquiries about if there's a way for them to get involved in the lab. And this message to us will be full of, Spelling and grammatical errors. Mm -hmm. And you know, you, you, on one hand you say, well, they're, they're early, but, but you know, you, we can't avoid thinking if they're not careful in this thing to us, what, what makes us think they'd be careful when running the experiment, when tabulating the data, when doing other things like that. So it, okay. it, that's what we refer to as a halo effect, mm -hmm. that if they don't, um, or the lack of a halo effect. <laughs> well, it's a halo effect on us, oh, yeah. namely that if they, if they're writing to us, they don't care whether things were grammatical or spelled right in something. Then our reaction is to think, well, they, they, if they got involved in our lab, they wouldn't care either about mm -hmm. whether the uh, numbers added up right or something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that that short article. We went, just kind of did, a, we need to credit again, Stephen Pan for that as a postdoc that uh, we looked at it somewhat historically when at one point that was considered a central uh, kind of part of the curriculum. But now it's largely advantaged, disappeared from schools even, mm -hmm. any, any training on spelling. So just an issue, does it, does it matter, and if so, how? In terms of uh, in the current environment, and uh, we conclude it does matter, basically. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear that because I'm a teacher at heart, and uh, my area is communication, interpersonal communication, yeah. and broadcast communication. And well, and when I was teaching students, they would say, "Well, it doesn't matter." They know the overall message, and I said, "Well, think of it this way." Those who are erudites, who are educated, will be able to identify when you end with a preposition, when you misspell your grammatical errors, and when you do it correctly, you will gain more respect from them versus if you do it incorrectly, the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, are they really careful? Did they 
put the time and effort into it? Do they really know how to spell or, you know, use grammar correctly? So I'm glad to hear. Yeah, yeah. So it's like an automatic response. It's like you, you might think, well, I shouldn't wait a minute. This is a young person. I shouldn't, but, but I you mean, can't help it, you yeah. just can't help thinking, well, gosh, how can they? And maybe it depends on the context too, to your point, you know, the environment, um, chatting messages, text messages, of course, you have all these abbreviations, acronyms and everything yeah. else, but anything that the public will see, and not only in the academic world, but I'd say outside the academic world as well, whatever job you're in, I, I, uh, I'm outside of the academic world now, but I, I cringe when I see upper management higher above me sending out these memos or these notifications, these messages, wrong spelling, wrong grammatical, you know, structure. And I can't go up to them and say, Hey, president, did you know that you have this wrong? <laughs> I can't do that, but I cringe. And, and, you know, it's our, it reflects our reputation, not only as an individual, but if you're working for a company or, or a university as right. well. So um, I have a, a few fun questions here at the end for you and, and both of you can respond or one of you can respond, but I always ask all of my podcast guests some of these questions. Number one, what is your favorite term, principle or theory and why? What is your favorite term, principle or theory and why? Well, one of them is desirable difficulties, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or said differently, the, the difficulties can be desirable. That difficulties okay. can be desirable, uh, yeah. There's, um, I think a lot of what we found out goes back to um, uh, a principle in an article a very long time ago that we didn't write. Uh, levels of processing principle to just realize that when you're trying to learn something, there's different kind of levels at which you can process it from just sheer perceptual reading to relating it conceptually to other things you know, and, and it matters what level you're processing things at. Okay. The next one is just a general one. It could be inside academic world or outside. What is something new that you have learned recently? Something new that you learned recently. Well, one kind of narrow thing that we mentioned was the pre-testing effect is, yeah. is new. Very powerful. Seems very powerful. New. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it, it's a kind of broad category, but... Um, I think the, the relevance of the kind of things we've studied to fields that we might not have thought they were relevant to before, like on artificial intelligence and, and um, other domains like that uh, has been kind of recently occurred to me. Okay. Um... Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Um, just general advice, uh, high level advice or anything else that comes to mind? Well, somebody is at a strong interest and for whatever reason, they <clears throat> have had to follow a different route through their education and occupation. It is now a case that people can, can develop a hobby or a special interest 
um, you know, I, I, it comes kind of a long story, but in the domain of people getting interested in bird watching and all the things it involves in perceptual learning and other aspects, um, for people to become very avid about that. And there's, again, in that domain and other domains, like you decided you've never played a musical instrument and you wanna just maybe pretty late in your life, pick up one. These kind of principles are all relevant to that. So it's kind of like, um, as we've said in a couple articles, uh, these principles go well beyond having implications for the, the, the normal years of schooling mm -hmm. because um, almost any occupation you have to continue to learn these days and there's avocations and like I mentioned. Well, my, also, one of my favorite oh. stories related to what Bob just said is a friend of ours who was a violinist and um, he heard about retrieval practice and these desirable difficulties. And without telling us about it at all, he started introducing what you might call expanding retrieval practice into his uh, violin practicing. And he said he used to always, you know, he'd work on one piece and then he'd keep working on it and work on it again, play the same passage over and over again. Instead of doing that, he would you know, practice that piece and then he'd move on to something else and practice it and then maybe something else. And then he'd come back to that first one and practice it. So he was getting the same amount of retrieval practice for all these pieces, but he was spacing them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was feeling, I think I'm getting better at these things. Uh, and then he said he, he realized, yes, he really was because groups that used to not invite him to play with them now started inviting him to play <laughs> with them. So that was his. Uh, yeah, that's that a funny story. Data. Yeah, that's a yeah. funny story. The other thing that I, I read someplace was um, a lot of these different memory uh, tactics and learning tactics um, help offset uh, the onset of Alzheimer's. If you start doing something and playing a different game that you've never played before, or you start doing something different, it creates more brain pathways and, and allows uh, to push back uh, the onset of Alzheimer's. So, yeah, it's not understood real well, but even, you know, learning a second language seems to have mm -hmm. benefits in delaying, uh, I'm not sure the physiology is understood, but a, a, a quite close colleague of ours is gathered pretty convincing support for yeah. for that i think for I a long time it was thought you know you after a certain age uh you couldn't form new uh neural memory circuits and so forth and that seems to not be true at all that and in fact uh and that mm. may be part of this underlying mm. business because you start learning something new you start uh developing new neural connections and so forth and maybe that's part of, uh, does it mean you'll never, you know, develop Alzheimer's, you'll never suffer mm -hmm. from dementia, but <coughs> it prolongs its onset, right? Yeah. Pro right. Delays it. Delays it. Delays it. Delays it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so two, two other questions. Number one is if you had any time or money 
any uh, as much time or money as you you wanted to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Well, one trip I've, I'm very anxious to do, and you, you Bob may have a different one. Uh, I haven't seen all the things just within the United States that I would mm-hmm. like to see. Mm-hmm. And we were planning actually to go up the coast, drive up the coast. We both play golf. And so we're going to drive up the coast and stop at various places where they have a golf course and play golf on our way up. And uh, I have been to Oregon and I know a little bit about the Oregon coast and so forth, but it was mostly when I was a little kid and I don't remember it very well. And also Glacier National Park. There are a bunch of parks up there. Uh, the Redwoods, the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Grand Canyon, but it was for about, what, 30 minutes? Yeah. So uh, a lot of things like that I would yeah, like Yeah, a little bit of background for what Elizabeth said is we've done a fair amount of traveling, but as, as it's been almost always the case that we took advantage of some professional invitation. Mm-hmm. So go somewhere in Europe, somewhere else to give a talk. And well, while we're there, we could do something else. Yeah. And that's been great to be able to do that. But it, it's been nothing like, you know, a real vacation. vacation. We mm-hmm. carry a job with us. And so. Um, or you feel free to stop yeah. and explore and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we, so there's, I think, um, We've done too little of just the kind of scene of the world and learning about it from different places. Uh, it may have had a bit of a too much of a professional orientation over the years or something like that. And, and we had well, to cancel. We were really upset for our <clears throat> 50th anniversary. We had complicated, we had to cancel. We were gonna take the Rocky Mountaineer from Vancouver across Canada to like Banff and Lake Louise and stuff and set that all up and for complicated reasons had to cancel it. So we're still thinking about how we got to celebrate that anniversary two years later. Right. Well, you know, um, I, I did notice that you guys, both of you have had multiple sabbaticals and you mentioned that for work reasons, uh, you've been able to travel. I know you went to St. Andrews. I know oh, that, yeah, that to... was an amazing song. That was and I, yeah. and I, I assumed you would love that, Robert, because you're an right. avid golfer. And the other thing that uh, our audience doesn't know is you've applied some of your techniques and learning techniques and, and findings to the golf, learning and, and improving your skill at golf. And you've been on a couple of podcast shows that focus on golf yeah, and, then, and, and how to I've do been invited that, so. to talk to... Um, um, groups of actual golf teachers and so on. So not, not about how to play the game of golf, but how to structure practice and so on. Mm-hmm. The final question for you is, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast? Boy, you have done a great job of yeah, covering things, covering things. Now on a maybe just consider, you know, the world of academics as a possible uh, future career for you. It's a great place to be. I would say particularly for women. Uh, uh, it's very accepting. Most fields are very accepting, some of women, and um, and uh, it's flexible. So you can also have a family and do things like that as part of it. Okay. 
Well, I really appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and experiences. Elizabeth and Robert, thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guests or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.